Okay. beautiful <laughs> i love that so um welcome to we, we disagree, disagree with, with nick, nick cosmo, and cosmo and our and very first musical guest helen <laughs> but not so, just musical also conversational that's right <laughs> so yeah uh would you tell us a little bit about that song and uh what inspired you to write it and um it's called autumn rhapsody it's about all the leaves in Tompkins Square Park, basically the ginkgo and the elms turning gold and amber and um, yellow during the autumn. And um, uh, actually, poetically, it's, it's about the passion of the fall and the fact that something could be so beautiful but be on the peripety of its own demise. And... Um, and that's essentially what it's about. And also the fact that, you know, when I came to the East Village in the 70s, um, Thompson Square uh, Park was a very different sort of place. And it, it was almost like a spiritual necropolis. And there were it was um, very dark and fugitive and shadowy, which um, corroborated with the themes in my life at the time, because I was very dark and degenerate and <laughs> self-destructive. And... Um, I didn't exactly come to the East Village for a spiritual awakening in the 70s. Um, um, and the fact is, is that uh, many people of my generation who were around in the late 70s are no longer alive. And whatever our self-destructive and degenerate vices were, um, some of them, some of my, many of my friends and colleagues and cohorts, um, you know, succumbed to the ultimately self-destructive conclusion of such uh, inclinations. Um, so the fact that, you know, 30, 40 years later, I can be sitting in Tompkins Square Park in the autumn of my life, having survived the various eras and epochs, um, 
and to feel more alive now than I ever did when I was 20 is um, part of the passion there. Wow. I think I can honestly say that's one of the best paragraphs anyone has ever said on this podcast. Yeah, I, I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> I disagree with Nick and Cosmo. Yeah, that's one thing that Cosmo and I, uh, I think we're in total agreement. Also, I, so I want to ask, uh, when, like, when did you write that song? Um, about three or four years ago. Oh, wow. In the autumn. I didn't... Knowing that I don't know how many autumns I have left, oh. but that I'm grateful to be here. I think about that autumn aspect a lot, that, that kind of what you were talking about, that um, there's... I don't know. I something about me. I get. I tend to get a little bit sad when I think uh, when I go outside at like five thirty and see that the sun's already setting, and it just really does mm -hmm. feel like a an imminent doom of some sort. Yeah, and, and like yet, the lid is being lowered, and mm -hmm. we're going to be stuck in the little coffins of our own thermal. Yeah. So I always struggle with that, but I also, you know, it, as a season, it's not without its charms. And yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that really captures like the ambivalence of it. It has like an elegiac quality, but also like something very sentimental. So, yeah. And something very passionate. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes we, like sunrises are beautiful and new beginnings, but some of us search for beautiful sunsets and suns beautiful sunsets are also very poetic. It's like the, um, the swan that opens her mouth only when it's time to leave. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I also I also like that song as an introduction to the podcast because I, you've had such an extraordinary life, and I just wonder if you could uh, tell us a little bit of autobiography with as much or as little detail as you care to talk about. Um and. Could you give me a time sense? Uh, do, like, do you want three minutes or five minutes? Mm -hmm. I think like uh, three to five minutes is good. Okay. Yeah. Well, I've had a very episodic life. And um, I think, you know, the lyrics, many rivers to cross or we shall overcome are very um, thematically succinct with my sort of life. I was born of somewhat dubious and nefarious origins and some might say ignomious. I was born um, at a time and place that considered illegitimacy a sin. So I was born to a single mother who was like a teenager unwed and was very poor. And my natural family was like uh, the little rascals. Mm. And I call it emotional Appalachia. And um, they too were born into a fatherless household. So they, you know, more or less lived on the streets. Their, um, their mother, who I was named after, was somewhat of an epic alcoholic. And um, um, anyway, it was, uh, I was put into foster care. Uh, my, my mother had another baby um, about a year after me, and the, uh, we were put into foster care. So, um, um, that brings up certain legacies that are like Moses-like, like being put into a basket or whatever. But there were themes of, I can just say, I mean, very quickly, themes of um, not being wanted, not being good enough, not belonging, and, but, and put into a foster care system 
um, if I can say, I'll say my real family, I have always had contact with my real family and visitation rights, and they were Irish. They were very loving and very violent. They moved all the time. They were almost like, they were very lovable. The women were very sexual. They were very Amazonian. They put on gobs of makeup and their mm. breasts were always busting out of their, you know, their cleavage was a pronounced feature. Nice. They were, um, you know, and they were almost like caricatures, very loving. You know, they listened to the transistor radio and wept at the sad songs or wept about boys they had crushes on and hung out in taverns and bowling alleys and wanted, you know, it was that sort of idiom. And um, my foster family, by comparison, were ve they were very elderly. My mother was very young when she had her kids, that she was a teenager. My, my foster family was very, were, oh, very important. My real family always lived in factory towns, you know, brick towns with a water tower and a and a overpass where the train passed through and you know a cinema that across the intersection you know there was an intersection and the main street was essentially on the highway you know it was just mm. that so it was that sort of edward hoppery industrial you know um landscape and it was essentially it was women because all the men sort of took off as soon as they were of age they followed in their phantom father's footsteps so um Mostly, my um, real family was all about women. And um, my foster family, by comparison, was uh, old. And they had already raised three children of their own. They were very rural. It was in, you know, it grew up in the woods and farm values and close to earth. And my foster parents um, thought of the Amish as the paragons which should be emulated. In fact, any other religion next to the Amish was a declension and a demise and a corruption. And the thing about the Amish that they loved, and we, were all, we always went to Lancaster to behold the paragons of virtue, um, is that they were agrarian, like my foster family. They believed that, earth, you know, they were very close to earth. They were very suspicious of education, um, of intelligence. They were very God-fearing people, but in an American Gothic sense, it was, um, it, there was something sinister and Calvinistic and punitive and uh, about um, their theological inclinations. But they, anyway, um, so they're, they're, but what I'm pointing out is that there was a big contrast between my real family and my foster family. And, um, not, not much more I can say about them except they it devoted the summation of their life, you know, to raising foster kids. So there were lots of us. And um, it was an interesting, it was an interesting world. It was an interesting upbringing, you know, and um, um, but even that drama gave me an understanding of the that there were hemispheres and dialogues and drama because my my real family was cert they were certainly good people but they were moral and religious reprobates like there was no moral core that you you could have never mind when it came to men and food or there was no order it was always disorder and there was no i mean you could have candy bars for dinner and tasty cakes and you know and cry about men and there were you know it was um 
Some might call it profane. Some might use the words cheap, tawdry, and profane to describe the element that were occupied by the women who were very loving to me and to whom they were my real, you know, whatever. Um, my foster family, by comparison, was very stern, very disciplinarian, very stolid. It was almost like an Igmar Bergman <laughs> type of agrarian virtue. Um, and um, so there you go. Um, this gets to be a long story. So I, I don't know what to cut out. Um, oh, well, don't feel um, the need to abridge it. We, uh, okay, I'm going to just say, one of the things with my mom is I, my mother would come to visit me and um, visit me and my sister. So we were allowed visitation and uh, to visit our real family. And I always loved my mother. I loved her profoundly when I was little. And I lived for the day when she was come again because when she held me, that was paradise. And I knew this wasn't my real family and blah, blah, blah. And when I asked my mother why I was put into foster care, she explained that my father had died in the war and that he died a hero and that he was up in heaven watching me sitting next to Jesus and God and that he wanted, that she wanted me, him to look down and be proud of me, so to be a good girl and um, that she, um, you know, that it was just sad. So I grew up with this... Um, understanding and this tacit understanding that my father was a hero who died in the war so that all of us could be free. So that every day when I went to school and said, I pledge allegiance to the flag, you know, I, I thought of my father who had died so that all the kids in my class who had fathers <laughs> could be free. Um, and that, that me having to pay the price of a father was small in comparison to his death to fight for all these 30 kids in my class so that they could be free. So I grew up understanding that so that like not to be sad about not having my dad. And um, to, I felt sorrier for my mother because she had lost her husband and she couldn't keep her kids. And at night when I went to bed and I said the Lord's Prayer, our father who art in heaven, with my little sister, I always thought of that man in uniform. Mm. This is very important because I grew up totally loving my mother and being in paradise about who she was. Right about the time of pubescence or adolescent awakening, and this is, this is very profound, um, my foster family and everything's concurrent. This is like Shakespeare, where all the elements embroider, you know, with a conspiratorial complicity in terms of timing. Because I'm reaching puberty, I'm going through adolescent awakening. Um, New Jersey, where my, my foster family was, it was near, you know, the Amish, but it was the agrarian. Um, it got its first strip mall. And my foster parents saw that that was the beginning of the end, that New Jersey was losing its idyllic, pastoral beauty charm. And um, they decided they were going to relocate to Maine. And not the coast of Maine, not where all the educated have clabbered houses <laughs> and um, discuss Andrew Wyeth. And, um, no, it's not the educated Maine or the coast of Maine, which I never saw. It was like Rangeley Lakes, where there were no flush toilets and where they, the telephone system was you, you go like, you, you know, it was like a egg beater that you... Um, you know, you get the operator and she connects you to where you're going. I mean, there was party lines. I mean, it was very backwoods, very, you know, it was their Amish dream. But to somebody who's like on the threshold of teenagehood, it was like a, 
a sense of doom because that was also it's like disappearing but concurrent with that is like i found out through rather accidental and unkind i found out unkind and under unkind cruel terms that um my father was not a hero who died in the war up in heaven watching me, that he had fathered half of Warren County and was sucking on a bottle of Jim Beam in a trailer camp out in Peaburg. And um, I found out really cruel things at about the same time so that my sense of identity was totally shattered. My sense of goodness, everything that my goodness was predicated on um, was destroyed. My sense of identity went into disassembly. I mean, just, it was awful. But so, so sh was also shattered the Eden or the sense of paradise that I had experienced in love for my mother. Like all of a sudden my mother fell from being, um, she felt from sacred, exalted. I thought of her as an angel and she fell to being a tramp and, a, you know, um, I want to use the word that begins with W-H-O and um, keeps going. But um, <laughs> you know what I mean? I found out that I was brought into this world under very dubious um, terms. And that, that really shattered me. Like my world broke because my whole sense of self broke and all the mythologies that had contributed to who I am, you know, um, were revealed. So I fell from the world of fiction into fact. Right. And um, that was, you know, everybody has their story of the fall, but that was the story of my fall. And that, you know, the fall from love for my mother because she became the betrayer and the, you know what I mean? I, it broke my heart. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, I understood of my foster family and why they would, um, everything seemed doomed. Everything just seemed doomed. My foster family was moving to Maine. Um, my family, my natural family has a, a, you know, genetic predisposition towards obesity, alcoholism, drug addiction. I mean, there's just so much. I, and I was born with all of that in my DNA, which I had to fight too. Because those, those things, those things, that's the third of the triumvirate. Adolescence, when most other little girls are going off, you know, into the meadow in their petticoats to discover their sense of sexuality and femininity and womanhood, you know, I find out these disparaging things about my heritage and instead of wanting to gallop into self-formulation and identity of myself as a woman, I just wanted to self-destruct. I was really broken. It was like blackness, like color was drained from the sky. And this was, by the time, this was 14. 15, my foster family moved, but I will tell you the social worker came to visit us and, uh, you know, to visit family to make arrangements. And I announced to the um, caseworker that I did not want to move to Maine. And she said, oh, you're going to return to your family? I said, no, I don't want that either. And um, because it seemed like both scenarios were doomed. My foster family, their sense of a virtuous woman was a fat spinster, right? That was their notion of virtue. It was all brokered by sexuality, right? It's like... Um, so they would have wanted me to be a fat spinster if I went, and that's what would have happened when I came to Maine. But my mother, it would have been like, if I followed in that footsteps, I would be living in a trailer camp with six different kids hanging from my arm from six different men who I was throwing 
irons. Like one was really, like the notion of vice was just as horrendous as the notion of virtue. Mm -hmm. And um, that's a lot to put on a little kid who hasn't even crossed the bridge into adolescent awakening, who's just at that juncture. Wait, about how old were you at this time now? 14, 15. Okay. And I had always been smart, right? I did really well in school because I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to please father in heaven and mommy, mm -hmm. you know, in um, Edward Hopperville. But um, I knew I was smart. And I have to say, the foster family never commended me for being smart. Like, they didn't like yeah. smart. It was like, you're a braggart, right? So that was always something I just... But I knew I was smart. And I knew I could get scholarships. I knew, like... And, and this is really sad. This is really sad. But I knew academia was my only ticket or hope out. I knew my intelligence, not my belief in God. Because up until that moment... The, when when my father was up in heaven next to God and my mother was like an angel who I felt sorry for, I never felt sorry for me. I felt sorry for my poor mama. You know, the heavens were in place. The minute my father, I found out my father was alive, I thought the whole God thing was a sham. I fell from pride into shame. I no longer was the salvation. I was the sin. Like everything became involuted. Like that's how broken I was. Um, about all of this because so much of my mythology was smashed. So I asked to be put in boarding school. And um, this was a big shock. This was like doing a Rosa Parks because I was supposed to be grateful. I was supposed to be grateful. And I just knew I had to escape. And I also knew I had addictions that I had to deal with, including a food addiction, right? My, there's obesity in my family and me and my sister were both little fat kids. And um, so that's how the foster family, I just knew that, that, that um, academia was my only hope and getting into, you know what I mean, that I couldn't, anyway, so that's when I, I got a scholarship to a very good boarding school where instead of reading John Steinbeck and talking about grapes of wrath or mice, of Mice and Men, we, um, we read uh, Beckett and <laughs> Sartre and Camus and discussed the abyss. <laughs> and, you know, that was education, but it was also a fall from God. You know, education, you know, academics and art accompanied my demise in a way, accompanied my fall. Like I fell when I was 14 or 15, but I also fell into the arms of addiction. I also knew that I had to find, it's, this is a very strange thing because I knew I was dealing with um, addictive disorders, you know, and that even if I didn't want, want them, I was a great Girl Scout. I was like a beaming Girl Scout, but all of a sudden at puberty, I saw those, those um, little molecules of self-destruction kicking in and tyrannizing. So it was like, it was tough. So anyway, I became educated and um, fought addictions. And anyway, um, they, you know, that's an, I, I don't know if that's enough, but let's just say I did really well in boarding schools and I got, I got scholarships to very fine, you know, the highest of the high in terms of um, academic excellence in terms of college. And I went to college for two years, but in college, I just have to say this, the, um, the cafeteria was open 
from six in the morning to late at night. And at eight at night, the campus bar opened until one in the morning, which meant that in terms of my addictive vices, which food and alcohol, it meant that all of a sudden I could not get A's. I could not get into the classroom, right? In boarding mm -hmm. school, I didn't have it. You know, it's like you had a half an hour to eat lunch, a half an hour. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. I was my my time was marshaled. It was disciplined. I had to be accountable. I couldn't let the addiction go wild. But in my fancy, expensive liberal arts hoity-toity school, it was whatever. And I this is going to be very strange, but I was bulimic before there was a name for it. I was bulimic before there was a name for it. I could not stop eating. And um, because there was no name for it, it was like the ineffable. It was like I was dealing with a supernatural force that had custody of my soul and my will that would, um, that controlled everything, governed everything, and that it was this in, um, unfulfillable hunger that ravaged everything and that would never be appeased until it had consumed everything, including me, right? So on one hand, I'm this like addict doing everything to fulfill the terms and decrees of the addiction. And I feel like I've made a Mephistophelian um, pact with a Faustian pact with the devil because, okay, I've escaped foster care. I've escaped my natural family. I'm getting knowledge, but at the same time, I'm in hell. And there's this big discrepancy between me and the outer world because the outer world thinks I'm just such a sweet little wunderkind angel, cherub, gentile, cute. You know what I mean? They, they don't know I'm living hell. And as long as I get my A's, I'm okay. As long as I get the A's, win the chess championships, write a poem. Oh, the world's going to go, oh, yay. Okay, great, great. But they don't know that I'm fighting this hell. They also don't know that the world of academics and art and poetry and blah, 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 that to me, it's like artifice, like it's artifice. It's like, it's not real. What's real is like the fact that these forces are devouring my hell, right? Are devouring my soul and that my soul's been mortgaged and that this is all pretense, but it's good. And also it's great. You know, this is a very, very rich school. And I knew I had to be around rich kids because I needed them to support my addiction. Like if I were in Povertyville, I would have been, whoa, right? <laughs> but but I, I have to say that I was in a I was in a very good school. I hung out with the lesbians because the lesbian and the lesbians loved me. <laughs> but I didn't hang out with the lesbians because I was lesbian. I hung out because they were rich. They would, and they would create a guard from the men because I didn't know how to deal with men and I didn't want to be ravaged by men. Like I knew if anybody got too close to me to love me, they would see how corrupt I was or how hopeless it was, like I was living in a condemned world. So, um, you know, there was this group at, at school, and this is, this is called Vassar College, you know, so it was a big women's college. So there was this group called the Lesbian Front, and there were seven of us, but six of them were paired off, <laughs> and then I was the queen. But it wasn't like I was the unattainable. I was the unassailable. I was the one that everybody wanted, like the women all, you know, but they couldn't have me, like I was unattainable. <laughs> so I'm in these exalted terms, but the truth is I feel so far from home, not knowing who I was because this whole academic, it was all pretense. Oh, let's like, you know, discuss Wittgenstein.
And, um, you know, so, but I'm going to just say by the end of my sophomore year, I knew the jig was up. I knew I couldn't get the A's and I didn't want to fail in the eyes of the world. So I took a leave of absence, still in good standing, but I knew like that the, that evil was gaining because like, I really felt like my cus my soul was in, in the custody of evil because I would lie, cheat, steal to do anything for the fix, not for the A. I could get the A. I could get, you know what I mean? But I would just to keep my relationship with my addictions going. And the girls would all buy me, you know, they were all into the pharmaceuticals. So they would keep me in alcohol and drugs, but they would never notice that I had a thing going with food. Um, la dee do. So anyway, I took a leave of absence. This is, okay, brain. Oh, okay, all you listening with brains. I took <laughs> a leave of absence because I didn't want to be found out. But I took a leave of absence from Vassar College in 1977. Because, it, and um, I knew I would be losing all my economic scholarships and scaffolding and all my respectability. And I came to the East Village. And I came to the East Village um, not to have a spiritual awakening. I came here because in the 70s, um, being an addict and an artist were compatible, like you could be anonymous here. But I came here to die. I came here for the same reason um, Nicolas Cage in Leaving Las Vegas goes to Las Vegas. I came here to die anonymously and just to be ravaged. But I came here inspired by um, Joseph Conrad and Hemingway, both of whom purport into the destructive element immerse. Like the only way to defeat evil or to fight evil is to go down and really, like I came here expecting to die. But it was, the so I came here in the late 70s. So if I speak of Tompkins Square Park in the late 70s, it was really spooky. And um, that's why that song means something. But you know what? Death didn't want me. I really was willing to die because I was in hell. I was tortured. I was what no mother would want her daughter to become. Like no one knew me. No one knew my name. And um, really haunted. But I came here and I bottomed out from my addictions. I have since then. So the East Village. The East Village. Um, mythologically, I most align myself with Persephone. And Persephone, as we all know, you know, um, tasted of the forbidden fruit. And because of that choice, although I don't think some of us have that choice, but because of because she she tasted that fruit and had, was in Hades, she has to spend half of her life in heaven and half of her life in hell, right? And she, she knows winter and she knows spring. She will always have knowledge of what hell and the necropolis is because, because the kingdom is at hand. You know, heaven or hell are at hand. It's a matter of our psychic disposition at any time. So anyway, I have that knowledge, but for whatever reason, I... Um, Death did not want me, and I am abstinent of my addictions today, and that has facilitated another journey. I did ultimately go back. Thank you very much. I did go back to school <laughs> and got a degree and 
you know, summa cum laude and won certain awards and they were mine. And they were mine because whoever I am now isn't based on what the world may have wanted or wasn't based. It's based on I have earned everything I am. But anyway, my life, that's that's the most significant. I could keep talking because I became a sailor. You know, there's like life. Like I have had a vast and assorted sundry life. But those are the most cruel things or they're the most critical things. And that's what the East Village is to me. Like the mm -hmm. East Village, I don't like the East Village. Like, like the, one of the things that's still true about the East Village is degeneracy and creativity are impossible. They have a really complicit, inextricable bond here, right? Degeneracy and creativity. Romanticization of death and self-destruction, right? It's like cool here. And there's, you know, it's a kick line of skeletons and ghouls. But... Um, I, I feel like I'm Persephone here. Like, this is where I bottomed out. Like, it's a furnace. So, um, how's that? How about I finish there? There's more, but then that gets even bigger. So, that's, it's, it explains the significance of that song mm -hmm. that 40, 50 years later, I'm here watching the leaves turn yellow. Mm -hmm. That was wow. perfect. Yeah, that was uh, really I, epic. I don't think we've ever had anything like that before, but thank you so much for sharing. Literally couldn't have asked for better. Yeah. Okay. So um, The gondolier and the sticks, quite <laughs> yeah, figuratively. Yeah. <laughs> to kind of uh, move uh, in a more like a philosophical direction, I mean, I, I guess one thought that, that, your, uh, that your monologue triggered was the you talked at the end about like the interconnectedness here of like degeneracy and creativity. And in my imagine, you know, you can call whatever you want, like uh, degeneracy and like, uh, I just, um, I feel like there's a kind of like intellectual laziness that comes with the, um, that comes with the valuation of destruction for its own sake. I think that, um, you know, I've seen similar things happen to uh, friends of mine and it's, there's, a lot of despair and I think that they have like this very poetic like self-imagination of like oh this is going to be like a very like dark like romantic like Arthur Rimbaud descent into death right. and I think it's never really Bukowski it's mm -hmm. that I think it's never that dignified I honestly think that no. like part of recognizing the tragedy of it is like appreciating the farce of it as well and I think what's really like beautiful and poetic is to to be sitting here and pay, to be able to tell that story you know there's no poetry in just being like no longer like and sometimes i would also say that sometimes art is an alibi mm -hmm. like it's a glorification mm -hmm. but um it should not be glorified mm -hmm. so um you know yeah, like especially in the East Village, there's a glamour and romance to self-destruction. So somebody like Bukowski or sometimes Nietzsche or, you know, the authors, the painters that one chooses to adore. You know, even there was a time I could tell you more up close if we ever get more up close into some of the details. I remember when in the nethermost stages of my bottoming out, when I would go into a urinal to <coughs> to vomit as I was bending over, I never knew if I would come back up, right? Mm -hmm. I never knew mm -hmm. if this was going to be the death, the one that took me, mm -hmm. because I was 60 pounds, right? Um, but I would think, oh, Janis Joplin died puking on her vomit. Jimi mm -hmm. Hendrix died choking on his vomit. And Jim Morrison, 
you know, it's like I would use that to glorify my demise. And then there would be this little voice that said, yes, but since when did they become role models? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? So, but here in these parts, latitude, longitude of hell, um, everything becomes involuted. So mm-hmm. it's part of my journey, though. It's part of my journey. I can say it's part of, my, it's part of knowledge. I have true knowledge now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can I can discuss the Frankfurt School. I can discuss Heidegger. I can discuss lots of academic things that might impress you with knowledge. But there's another knowledge about heaven and hell, and about human mortality. And when you realize that to think a to think a f- poem about a baby is more beautiful than a baby. Oh wow! Yeah. Mm-hmm. What have we lost? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I've been thinking about this a lot recently. That like the aesthetic sense, like I I'm not against it at all. Like far, no, I'm not anti. I love art and I love beauty, mm-hmm. but but it always has to be oriented towards like some spiritual good. Mm-hmm. Like beauty is never its own end. Like art is never really its own end. I, I think that the yeah. Like, honestly, like, a lot of good art comes out of, like, the decadent movement in, like, the late 19th century. Like, I actually, I really like, like, Oscar Wilde and uh, Huisman and D'Annunzio. But, like, I think what makes them interesting is that they're, like, in real time, like, grappling with the issues. And, and, yeah, exactly. What are they arguing with? Mm-hmm. What are they debating with? What are they trying to articulate? What is, you know, yeah, yeah that's... And, like, the great bulk of, of like, those, like, artists and writers, like, ended up, like, uh, coming into some kind of, like, Christianity, like, in, at the end of their life. So, make Well, we have to want. because it's about salvation, not damnation. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, early in my, th- yeah, it's like there's salvation, not damnation. And there's also so much of our intellectual pomposity was based on an atheism, right? Mm-hmm. Like... I became, academia was part of my demise, it's, and I renounced God. But um, even Einstein, although there's many besides Einstein, always said knowledge unaccompanied by a moral prerogative is really dangerous. Mm-hmm. But, you know, anyway, but it's something, you know, mm-hmm. in the world of redemption, I have redeemed, you know, a spiritual journey as well as a... Mm-hmm. And the music, actually the music and my creativity is actually part of, that redemptive mm-hmm. force. I, I was going to ask you, like, you, why do you create art now? Because you still write songs, and they're really incredible. Oh yeah, and in fact, I didn't do that. Yeah, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't write music. No, I was like the. I thought my brain was going to save me. I thought my intellect was going to save me. So my dream was not to be a musician. It was never on the list of things to do. I was going to be a great thinker. I wanted to write. I wanted to be the next Dostoevsky or Dickens <laughs> or Theodore Dreiser of American culture, right? It was going to be my words and my thoughts and my intelligence that mm-hmm. was going to be my signature to humankind. And I was going to celebrate or I was going to participate in the great cultural, philosophical, artistic evolution of civilization, mm-hmm. right? Pompous. Mm-hmm. But um, the last of my addictions, and this is like something I t- say to people, you know, I... Um, cause I'm an addict by nature, the same way I'm an artist. Um, but yeah, you know, it's like liberal mm-hmm. art. It's not mm-hmm. like, oh, I'll do quaaludes. Oh yeah, I'll do crystal math. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, let's see what, um, MDA is. Okay. Mm-hmm. So anyway, but I'm that way with now I'm that way as I'm a poet, I'm a writer, I'm a musician, but, but this is how music came. Um, when I gave up the last of my addictions, which was cigarette smoking, I needed something to do with my hands and my mouth. <laughs> 
<laughs> I needed something to do with my hands and my mouth. So you got an accordion. So I picked up a squeeze box. Yeah. Wow. I didn't study. I didn't work. And the first thing, the first song I learned was Amazing Grace. Oh. But the um, accordion became my best friend. And, you know, because when you give up substance abuse... Or when you give up addictions, and I make a joke, I've given up heroin, Heineken, Haagen-Dazs, and Henry, because I could <laughs> use self-destructive, you know, it's like, if you mm -hmm. can't find macaroni and cheese, we'll just find a heroin addict, and he'll take you down. Okay, no, we don't want it. We might want to edit that out. But anyway, there's, <laughs> we can become, addictive personalities can become addicted to anything, and they'll use mm -hmm. anything to take themselves down, right? Down, as in hell. Um, so when you give up those things, you have the, all of this time in space and energy that it's like how do you fill it and so the accordion and and the keyboard became the you know the keys to the kingdom mm -hmm. quite honestly and it, it actually gave me tacit proof of god's existence because there was no logical reason i should be able to write music and i've written some pretty sophisticated impressive things mm -hmm. and it's like oh wow that's like from just staying here and having and the songs, like, I don't really, you know what I mean? It's not based on knowledge. It's not based on intelligence. It's not based on learning everything there is and being in the fast lane and wanting to get ahead of everybody. And I'm going to be the best piano player. No, it's just like, okay, I've got, you know what I mean? It's dealing mm -hmm. with depression or it's dealing with dark night of the soul. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Um, so that's how, why I play the accordion. Yeah, you know, um, usually we have a topic for the episode. <laughs> that's kind of been derailed, which is good because I like the way that it's gone. But, um... My original topic that I had proposed was going to be music, knowing your vocation as, oh. a, as a musician. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have a couple of uh, recurring segments. So <laughs> um, I guess I'll start with um, the question from the internet. First of all, the first question from an anonymous asker on Yahoo Answers. What is ellipsis? music what is good music what is bad music what makes you characterize music in a certain way uh do you want to answer that first or should i hand it over to cosmo why don't why don't we hand it over to cosmo where did the question come from this How comes from face? a website it called yahoo answers comes from this absolutely horrendous website does it have what? anything to do with it but did it come in this time in yeah Oh, it came. No, 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 no. We, we find the these. Yeah. So this is extraneously yes. introduced. We the it's a it's a thing we sometimes do on our podcast where we okay. find questions. I thought this was your first podcast. No, no, no. you're our first guest. You're our first guest. Oh, like, we've been doing it with the two of us for like seven or eight episodes okay. now. So. All right. So cosmos. So now Would I you like to answer I this extraneously this. introduced. <laughs> it this. What is music? What is ellipses music? Question mark. I don't have an answer. I do have a, a little tangent okay. about how I am always arguing with people about whether music is poetry hmm. or not. I always say no because my in my in my in my broad reasoning for this is if you take the music out of music and just sing the lyrics, read the lyrics it because it's not good, you know. Mm -hmm. It's totally different. But we just heard Helen's song, 
which was her song she wrote, but without the lyrics, and it was still so beautiful. So now I am having second thoughts on the differentiation of elements of art. I have a lot of thoughts on this topic. Yeah. I think that... Um, like... Nicholas, you have thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. What do you I, think, I, Nicholas? I, I from slumber. What I've, do you think, I've come out of hibernation to speak on this one topic and then vanish <laughs> back into the ether which spawned me. Um, so I think that like looking at like the historical development of poetry, right, it really does come out of song. It comes out of like a like spoken oral tradition of like bards that sing mm -hmm. like all of the like really ancient epic poetry, like the Iliad and the Odyssey and like the Epic of Gilgamesh. These are like spoken oral traditions that were committed to memory and sung. And I think that that aspect of it as a musical performance is very crucial to understanding poems like that. When you start to get into like uh, Virgil, like then you're looking at poetry that is written and it has like a kind of like consciousness of itself as a written medium, but there's still this weirdness about it because it's following the conventions of epic poetry that were established as like a medium of like vocal performance of music, right? Mm -hmm. And now like, um, and that's like maintain like that vocal quality is maintained in like medieval troubadour poetry, etc. But then like again, like you start to see like this, I would consider it a degeneration of sorts, or at least like this kind of uh, branching off where like the epics of like the early modern period, like um, Paradise Lost and uh, Orlando Furioso, like they also seem to be like, written to be consumed as printed books, printed matter. That's a completely different medium. Mm -hmm because like music it's purely ephemeral it's like every performance is like a unique incident that is pure like contained within the moment of that individual performance and like the poem itself exists as like a kind of script for this performance whereas like if you have a book that's like a static like concrete object that you can reproduce and like um you can kind of milk it for a similar um aesthetic effect like um and that's only going the only difference is going to be determined by your subjective emotional and internal state when you consume it mm -hmm. so i mean these are two very different media that get conflated under this like name of poetry and like the idea of poetry as printed matter like i think it's a very uniquely modern phenomenon to some degree like it mm -hmm. represents like a kind of high civilization that's completely lost continuity with the origins of the poetic medium and so part of my like i think one thing i admire about um like concrete poetry and um like apollinaire is like kind of like an innovator in this way is like the consciousness of like okay like printed poetry is printed poetry uh ezra pound gets into this too and also <laughs> it's kind of um like part, pound is in love with like chinese characters right because like they are like both like like they are like um imagistic it's like within a chinese character you have like a like sometimes you have like an image which portrays the thing but in a very abstracted form and that is like something that is unique to the printed medium and that's something that i try to capture in my own writing as well to if i'm writing a poem and putting it out as a written product i want it to be something that will work best as a written product and if i adapt it for performance i want it to be radically different i want it mm -hmm. to be a completely different entity because the formal poetics of spoken poetry and written poetry are just completely dissimilar
-hmm. you're looking at a static object on a page or you're listening to someone speak to you in real time and they have like their own integrity as unique art forms mm -hmm. so so you're so you're saying that art is determined by its form and what we call poetry nowadays is just a different form of art than what was poetry before exactly yes and music is is similarly connected to that original poetry right i mean like you know if you like decide to like read a poem that is like created to be consumed as printed matter then you might cast like a new perspective on it right but it's not really like the poem it's like a an adaptation of it that exists more or less as like a supplemental material to the main text yeah and if you're reading the iliad like for example it could be useful especially if you're a classic scholar or something to like have like the Iliad printed out and to like do like a close reading of it to like further scrutinize and appreciate it but that's not really consuming the Iliad the way that it was meant to be consumed that's like mm -hmm. kind of like creating like a new experience which is supplemental to the main text yeah so <laughs> today is the day of uh, monologues I of think that's great well Helen it's it's a great it's a great new direction for our for our cast. I'll turn it over to you then. What do you think on the topic? What is music? Um or what Well, I wanted to I wanted to not so much what is music, but what is art? And what is the mm. difference between art spelled with a capital A mm -hmm. and art as a commodity spelled with a little baby A. And um for art spelled with a capital A, which is the superlative art, I think of art as something that has a redemptive and saving value, and that it also has an absolute value in terms of its beauty. The way a rose is beautiful, regardless of what era or epoch, and it's beautiful to a poet, it's beautiful to a baby, it's beautiful, like, it's, it has a sort of absolute um, quality that will never perish or tarnish. Um, although, you know, and so I think of Art, there's great art and um, I don't think when I say great art I don't confine the word I, I that includes music literature um, painting f actually even film actually, and um, actually taxi driver <laughs> taught me that you know film can be great literature it can really take on and if you think about the difference between a good book and a great piece of literature there's a difference between a good read which creates pleasure and instant gratification and you know mollifies one for the duration of the experience you know that's a good read it's a good book but a great piece of literature you know changes one transforms one enlarges one and I know that as a little kid, I just have to say, when I talk about salvation, art has a salvation, salvatory value, and that art made me, it's that despite whatever my circumstances were growing up, I was not condemned by those circumstances. Why was I not condemned? Because I loved to read. Because books offered me entrance into other kingdoms and they made me larger. Because Tchaikovsky wrote The Pathetique, and that music could describe a depth of sorrow that nothing seemed to reiterate in real life. That um, Van Gogh's paintings could, 
you know, could somehow capture pictorially this vivacity of one's like psychic disposition and impose it upon the perception of heavens, right? So that there was like, whether it's literature or whether it's art or whether it's great music, um, that somehow it can transform, acknowledge the soul and enlarge the soul and transform the soul, right? And Dostoevsky, I do love Dostoevsky for that. But um, I think there's a real difference between the sacred and the profane in art. And the sacred is that which transforms and is absolute and which is irrefutable in its value and good. The word good, too. The woman used or the question posed was about music and art. I mean, there's crappy music, too. And there's just popular music, populist. But then there's music that, you know, might aspire to move you in a way or to feel in a way or to acknowledge a depth in your soul. Um, and but but there is a you know there's i i think there's a difference between you know sacred art sacred truth and then you know with the little baby letters which are more commodities mass manufactured that actually dumb us and they don't enlarge us at all they keep us small so i would say that and if i say um i'm an artist it doesn't it includes music right it includes music yeah. the spoken word whatever but music in my case because it's not mental was was very transformative in terms of uh my spiritual development not my intellectual development it was anti-intellectual mm -hmm. you know so but yeah. it's part of the spiritual whatever uh -huh. power force hey look i'm talking is it am i too loud i moved uh. I'm holding the mic. Yeah, I would put I would put it down. On, I think I if you just leave it there, yeah. You just leave it there. I don't know. No, it's like I I because I was looking at Cos yeah, Cosmos. Yeah. I felt like oh, I have to bring this over. Yeah, with me. yeah. I didn't mean to be so emphatic. <laughs> listening. Sorry to, to the listeners. I feel like that's uh that's part of the character uh -huh. of the episode. Okay. I, Authenticity. I actually have to leave in five minutes to go to class, which. Considering how well this podcast is going, is feels just so premature. Mm -hmm. We might have to do a second one, but yeah, oh, but leave him wanting more. Yeah, if you're willing to leave a laptop here, and then I could take it to your house. I I kind of want to keep going. Yeah, we could do that. Are you okay? You need to take this why laptop. Why don't we do a part two? Okay, wait. Yeah, let's good... just do a part two. Because this was intense. I mean, this is yeah. this might be more than fulfilling to those who are hungry for this sort of stuff. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? It's Yeah. Okay. So let's have a three minute closing argument. Wait, closing possibly, <laughs> closing to, discussion, no. whatever. No, let's not argue. Uh, let's have that be the argument. <laughs> a three minute closing discussion. Okay. What's okay. what's our how how's it How's it going? How's it going? <laughs> and it's what going. and what and what do you think happened here and and we'll we'll bring to the next one well this has been a very know. unusual format um for for uh frequent listeners of of we disagree will know that yes yeah. if there are any <laughs> <laughs> hi dad <laughs> Th thanks for tuning in oh is that is your dad listening i i hope so yeah. we uh, have I guess, some i guess we'll find out <laughs> who say they listen but I don't believe them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, yeah, this is an unusual format. A lot of uh, emotional ups and downs, but yeah. but I, I really enjoyed the new perspective that you bring. Oh, intense training. Yeah. yeah. My emotions have just been going up since the beginning. Wow. No downs for me. Well, it, 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 it takes you all the Did way Did you go up down? Oh, I mean, you have Did a you very have harrowing story. You know, that's all I mean. Your story's very harrowing. Not that it put me in a bad mood, but just like we're really uh, <laughs> oh, we put confronting, like like you said, like you, I mean, you're talking about like Many going to the East to Village cross. to die, and like mm -hmm. <laughs> like this is this is intense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, I, I no, consider... I've dealt with big things that yeah, never mind. I don't and, mean it's not exalted, but yeah, you know. I mean, you're one of my best friends, and I don't even know if I've gotten this story in this much detail. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's rich. I totally agree. Yeah, thanks. So, time for your monologue. Cosmo. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my, my, well, we've uh, reached the end. Thanks, guys. <laughs> I think, I think you'll ha we'll have to save my monologue for uh, next week, day, okay. something Sounds like good. that. Until then, uh, this has been uh, We Disagree with Nick and Cosmo. No, we don't! And our... <laughs> Wonderful guest, Helen, or Helen the accordion player. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>